0: Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, coming up, you'll be hearing from actor Kirk Cameron, who hosted a special events in theaters last fall featuring a number of Christian leaders commenting on the topic of revival. That is now in DVD and he'll share some information about that concept. Plus, for years he served in leadership at a church in San Antonio with Max Lucado. Now Randy Frazee has a new ministry effort and a new book that deals with what happens after we leave this earth. Then it's the unique parenting perspective of Dan Seaborn of Winning at Home, who elaborates on two significant elements for parents, grace and truth. You'll also hear from Roy Peterson of the American Bible Society, who has grown from youthful misbehavior to following God's call in the work of missions. And on this edition of The Intersection, some coverage of President Trump's recent visit to foreign countries. With some comments on his travels to Saudi Arabia and Israel, it's Jimmy DeYoung of Prophecy Today. Then, with insight into the President's visit with Pope Francis, you'll hear from Paul Ken Gore of Grove City College, who has recently released a book exploring another President-Pope relationship. Finally, retired Air Force chaplain, retired Colonel Robert Michael Hicks, presenting some analysis on religious components of radical Islamic terror and the importance of understanding it. This is The Intersection, of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Kirk Cameron is a well-known Christian actor and speaker. Last fall, he was the host of a special event in theaters called Revive Us, a national family gathering. The event featured a number of well-known Christian leaders and is now available on DVD. With some comments about the overall purpose and content of the event, this is Kirk Cameron.
1: You know, leading up to the uh, presidential elections last year, I was traveling around the country teaching marriage conferences, and I heard the same thing coming from moms and dads everywhere. Uh, the, the country is, is just spiraling out of control uh, morally, spiritually. What, what are we going to do about the future for our kids? Uh, people asking, are these the last great days uh, of, of, of America as a free nation? And I kept saying, wait a minute, this is the point in the story where God parts the Red Sea and his people go walking through. If we turn to him uh, with hearts full of faith and we roll up our sleeves and we get to work, we can see hope and a a bright future. And so I called uh, what I called a, a national family meeting, the family of faith, come together, and we held a live revival meeting. And I called my brightest, most faithful and inspiring friends, Dr. Ben Carson, Eric Metaxas, Francis Chan, James McDonald, uh, Jennifer Rothschild, and we talked about how to revive the nation from the bottom all the way up to the top. It was a time of prayer, of worship, and learning uh, what it takes to make America blossom and flourish and grow by the family of faith leaning in and engaging.
0: Mm. Let's drill just a little bit deeper as far as what you, as well as your guests, had to say that night in that national family meeting. What were some of the topics that they discussed?
1: Well, I asked Dr. Ben Carson, who is a world-renowned neurosurgeon, uh, who has performed medical miracles, uh, if America were your patient, doctor, how would you diagnose her health? And he said the words, critical condition. But He said, you can restore the patient to full health if you apply treatment soon enough, right away. And he talked about what that treatment is. Uh, We went to Independence Hall with Eric Metaxas where the Constitution was signed, and he pointed out the very area of infection in the nation. And that is the area of true religion, true faith, faith in God and in his word. And we talked with James McDonald and Francis Chan about how do you get true faith and what does it look like when it's applied to our families, to our churches, to our communities and our nation. And we worshiped together. We prayed together. And then we, we, uh, we talked about the one strategy that has always worked and never failed to restore a nation in every generation. And uh, it's right there in, in, in the Bible. It was given to us by Moses. Uh, it's called the Shema, and it works from the inside out and the bottom all the way up to the top.
0: Hmm. Elaborate just a bit more as you talk about this Shema that we find in the Scriptures.
1: Moses told his people as his last departing words, as they were about to head into a culture that was uh, overrun by godless pagan ideas. Uh, that sounds very familiar to us today in America, and he said to them. Uh, listen, listen with with ears to obey. He said, you've got to love God with all your heart and know God with all of your mind. And you've got to apply his ways to your own heart, to your children, to the works of your hand, uh, all the way out to your community and all the way up to the city gates where government business is done. And so it's an inside out bottom up strategy, uh, which is uh, so unfamiliar to people today. They, they, they want to elect a president and expect, to him, expect him to rule like a king from the top down and fix everything overnight. But that's a terrible plan. That's how dictators are formed, and that's how uh, countries fall. What our founders knew was that God says you've got to build this from the grassroots, uh, rock solid from the bottom all the way up to the top, starting in your heart, and then letting those values permeate all the way out to the works of your hands, at your, at your job, uh, down to the next gen- generation, and all the way up to the White House. That's how we do it, and that's how uh, our founders did it. And that's how we can, we can get back to it.
0: Kirk Cameron here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website ReviveUs.com. Well, this is The Intersection podcast. Author and pastor Randy Frazee spoke with me recently. He formerly served as senior minister at Oak Hills Church in San Antonio. In our recent conversation, he discussed the inspiration for and concepts he relates in the book, What Happens After You Die, a biblical guide to paradise, hell, and life after death. From that conversation, this is Randy Frazee. About
2: 19 years ago, I was going to take my mom for the first time ever, who sacrificed so much for us on an all-expense-paid-for vacation to the beautiful Niagara Falls And I called her in October. We're going to leave a couple days after Christmas. And uh, she said she wasn't feeling well. As it turned out, that got progressive. And I went up to see her uh, to try to get her well before the trip. It turns out she had uh, advanced pancreatic cancer and died three days before we were to leave. And And there's just a number of things that happened to me, Bob. One was a question my mom asked about whether Jesus was enough, and another one was uh, this, uh, a real crisis of belief, this idea that, her, that, that my mom lived on beyond her death. I just had a hard time picturing that and believing that, and so I went into a season of serious doubt, which is really stuff tough for a pastor, right, to doubt, hmm. you know, he believes in heaven, uh, but it was where I was at, and it took me on a journey that ultimately led uh, to the writing of this book.
0: You mentioned your mother's death, and she asked a question or was struggling with a question, and that is, Is Jesus enough? So, talk about the, the essence of that question, what she was struggling with, and why it's so important relative to the afterlife.
2: It really is. Uh, this is the, pa- the pa- what my mom was asking was really, What's the path to the afterlife? She had already accepted she was dying. She asked me this question on the back of the travel van my parents had purchased. My dad was driving. I was sitting on the back bench where my mom was in extreme pain, and she asked this question from her from her son, the pastor, and I uh, said immediately, yes, Jesus is enough, but there were always these passages of Scripture that bothered me, and and I always would shove them aside, particularly in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus said, is answering the question from the rich young ruler about whether what, what he must do to inherit eternal life. And it sounded like Jesus was saying that – well, his answer was, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And that passage always bothered me. And if there was something else my mom needed besides just simple faith in Christ, I wanted her to know this. So I went to the scriptures over those next three days, and I poured over it with no sermon to prepare, no denominational ax to grind, and I dealt with this passage, and here's what I discovered, is that if the rich young ruler would have admitted that he couldn't do it, then Jesus would have led him to John 3, 16, that a person needs to know that they're lost in order for them to be saved, and I concluded that the only pathway to eternal life is through faith in Jesus Christ. I went into my mother's room. She was already heavily sedated. The nurse said she could hear me. I whispered in her ears, Mom, I double checked. Jesus is enough. I'll see you soon. I love you.
0: Mm. And I would imagine, and I'm going to take a step out here, a little step in faith, and ask you as a pastor. You have no doubt talked to people, I would think, in the past about these matters of life after death. Have you found that there is a significant number of people whom you have spoken with throughout the years that have made that step, they've taken that step of faith, they've accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their lives, but yet they're still afraid of what comes next. They're afraid to die, and they are struggling with the same question.
2: Absolutely. I think there there are two types of people. And and, and one of the reasons I was encouraged to write the book is because in talking to people, I found that that tribe is bigger than any of us ever expect. It's Mm. hard for us to embrace that faith alone will get us there, particularly as we're staring down our final hours. And then even if a person senses, okay, I've got Christ and I'm pretty sure that that's the uh, that's the that's the only pathway. I'm still very unclear about what happens to me after my, after after I die. And even if it's a compelling vision, it, and I think most people don't have a, a compelling enough vision. It's the country song, "Everybody Want to Go to Heaven, but Nobody Want to Go Right Now." <laughs> that really resides in the hearts of many people. And so wh- what I have found is that that there are many, if not most, believers who struggle with a vision for the afterlife that's rooted
0: in Scripture. Randy Frazee here on The Intersection. His website address is randyfrazee.com. The Intersection continues now with Dan Seaborn, founder of Winning at Home and director for the Marriage and Family Division of the American Association of Christian Counselors. He shared with me recently some material relative to his book, Parenting with Grace and Truth, Leading and Loving Your Kids Like Jesus. Here now is Dan Seaborn.
3: I share how I believe the Ten Commandments were God's guidelines and law for our world because God knew when there's seven billion of us that we were going to need some help. And so he gave us these Ten Commandments. But for most of us, they feel like more, um, I don't know, control. God, thou shalt not. You know, It almost feels legalistic. And I think a lot of times as parents, that's the way we parent. We spend our time going, hey, kids, don't do this, don't do that here's the rules, here's the guidelines, and that's pretty easy in Christian families in particular to grow up with a lot of guidelines, a lot of rules, but it leads to legalism, and it leads to our children wanting to rebel because they don't want to be boxed in, and one of the things I talk about in this book is how when Jesus came along, he did not remove the Ten Commandments, but he wrote love all over them. He brought that grace that goes with the guidelines, and I believe as parents, We can know all the rules and guidelines, but the grace to walk with our children, give them the freedom to make mistakes, give them the freedom to struggle, give them the freedom to find their own identity in Christ. And that's what happened with me. My daughter Anna found her way to the Lord on her own. I wish she would have done it a much easier way, but I had to let her go and trust that the Lord the prodigal son story. I have the prodigal daughter story, but I had to give her grace, and I never closed my door to her. There are some parents who will say, well, if you're going to do that, I'm not going to talk to you, and I never did that. I kept the door wide open for Anna, and I said to her, you're always welcome in this home. We love you. We care for you. This is your home, and that open door, that grace that we extended to her, she later told me it was what made her want to come home. I, I remember when she did come home, I said, Anna, why'd you come? What what made you come home? And she said, well, I woke up at 3.30 on a picnic table one morning. Uh, I had done some drugs. I woke up, I'm laying there by myself. And she said, I started thinking to myself, wait a second, my dad's got a house that he wants me to be in, he loves me. Why am I living this way? And it dawned on her, the Lord opened her eyes and she came home and she said, thank you for not closing the door on me, dad. Thank you for not giving up on me. In fact. She wrote me a note a couple of weeks ago. She actually hid it in my bedroom so I would find it later. And it was just that very thought. She said, Dad, you never gave up on me, and I'll never be able to thank you enough for that. So, you Mm -hmm. know, that grace that goes with the law, that grace blended with the law, which is what I think Jesus did is what we as parents, I think, need to do.
0: From your standpoint, where does the grace come in? It, I wouldn't think that means basically you waive all the consequences when a child right. breaks the rules. So how does grace work here in this framework? Well, I would say to you,
3: first of all, base how you deal with situations with your children, the grace and, and even the rules, base it on each individual child. Uh, we have four children and each child is different i remember thinking i'll parent them all the same way well that doesn't work so look at what that means for each individual child with anna she needed more grace from me than my son did for example he, he just he, he got it he figured it out he wasn't always needing grace anna was Anna, i, I say this in love she wasn't the most intelligent of my children she, she's smart but she wasn't the most intelligent and even sometimes i would have to have a little more grace with that understanding she doesn't get this the same way someone else in the family might get it. She had some more social skills that they didn't have. So I try to look at each individual child and go, what's grace look like for them? And with Anna, it meant I was going to have to have way more patience with her on a day-to-day basis because she she didn't understand understand things and apply things as easily as, for example, my son did. And so as a parent, I think you need to seek the Lord in knowing how to give and extend grace to each of your children. Let them make mistakes. Now, of course, they pay for their consequences. It's very important that they, um, they have to pay consequences for their beliefs, or for their sins, I should say, and for the things they do. Uh, Anna would sometimes say to me, Dad, I'm going to go do this. And I would say, babe, there's a consequence to that. And if she could get on the phone with me today, she would tell you right now, She's in her you know, she's she's she actually came to counseling at our counseling center today and she's like, Dad, I see now what you mean. I'm suffering the consequences of my decision. You would tell me that now I'm experiencing it. I'm I'm experiencing the pain. I'm experiencing what it means to try to love myself again after letting myself go through this stuff. And so as a parent, don't try to don't try to take away the consequences of what they've done. That's part of their maturing. If you make it easy for them, if you bail them out, you aren't helping them any their growth and their maturity and their witness for the Lord and their testimony from the Lord will come partly from the consequences they, they make, the, I mean, they experience from the mistakes they made. And so as a parent, uh, give grace, but allow
0: consequences to be balanced in there. Dan Seaborn here on The Intersection. The website address is winningathome.com. This is The Intersection podcast with Roy Peterson, president and CEO of the American Bible Society. He shared with me some elements of his own life story and his response to God's call in his life relative to his book, Set Free, Unstoppable Hope for a World That is Waiting. This is Roy Peterson.
4: My path began as a broken, uh, desperate 19-year-old who had made a lot of bad choices. And um, I wish I wished now that I had known the Word of God and had God's compass and leading in a relationship with Christ in my life, but I did not. I ended up in a Mexican prison sentenced to uh, upwards of nine years uh, facing prison time in Mexico and desperate, broken, ashamed of what had happened in my life, and someone reached out to me. Someone came and brought me the Word of God, the Scriptures, and gave that to me as a gift, and a relationship with Christ was birthed. My life was changed. A simple act of sharing God's Word took this broken 19-year-old and changed me forever. We went into uh, Mexico uh, with illegal drugs, and one of the uh, friends I had made actually had a stolen charge card. And with that stolen charge card, uh, began shopping, and all of us were arrested and charged with those crimes. And because there was a large group of us, there was more than seven of us, uh, we were actually treated like we were some kind of an international gang which brought even more charges, which was you know hysterical to think about this clumsy group of teenagers as being a gang but we w- we were charged as such and um, I was the one uh, that was identified uh, to receive the most charges and the most aggressive punishment and um, and and God used. All of that. The other people all got out within weeks, um, but I was there for months. And God used all of that trauma and all of those months to change my life. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think about the person who gave up their Saturday. These young, these young people with guitars and Bibles gave up their Saturday to come in and visit Spanish prisoners. In fact, the first time they came, Bob, they only brought Spanish Bibles, and I didn't read Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish. And I, I could get nothing out of that because it was not in my language. And I and I told them I desperately wanted a Bible, and they said, "We will come back, and when we come back, we will bring you one." And so many people had lied to me. So many people had promised things and then didn't do it. I. I was up and down a roller coaster of hope and in desperation, hope. And I, I didn't know if they would really come back, and they did. They came back, and they brought the Scripture. So you have you have somebody bringing, so that intervention of someone bringing God's Word. You have somebody praying. You have somebody, a financial partner, somebody, a donor, had to give because I didn't have money. They gave me that Bible, so somebody had to pay for that Bible. All of these participants of the body of Christ together made a difference. And they don't even know what happened. I don't know their name. They don't know my name. They they gave me scriptures, and they have no idea that I became the president of Wycliffe Bible Society, and, and now the president of, of American Bible Society, responsible for getting the scriptures out all across our country and around the world. Um, all I say is, you know, look at God, and then look at, look at man's part in this story.
0: So you've read this book called Set Free set up if you will for us what it is that you wanted to communicate through the book
4: you know as I've shared my story uh, Bob I've I've met so many parents who are good parents and they've done the right things and yet their child uh, has has one of their children has made choices that it's just causing them so much concern so much grief there are so many suffering silent parents out there and they're just and they're and they're they're desperate. And my story has given them hope. When they find out that someone who's made such horrible choices can be saved and turned around, it gives them hope, and they won't give up. They keep praying for their child, and, and, and it gives them courage to press on, trusting that God can change even the most broken broken person. The other, the other person that's been encouraged uh, uh, by my book or my story is uh, someone who's believed the lie that they're disqualified to serve God or they're unqualified to serve God. They've done something or they have bad theology and they think that God can't use them, and that's such a lie. And they read my story, Bob, and they think, oh my goodness, if God could use this, this broken 19-year-old to become a Bible translator and the president of American Bible Society... Oh, my goodness. I should say yes the next time my pastor
0: asks me to do something mm. in the church. I should trust God the way Roy has trusted God in his brokenness. That was Roy Peterson here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website American.Bible. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website MeetingHouseOnline.info. There you'll find a link to the Download Center marked Meeting House On Demand through which you can listen to and download full conversations from recent guests on the podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Now some coverage of President Trump's recent visit to foreign countries. With some comments on his travels to Saudi Arabia and Israel, this is Jimmy DeYoung of Prophecy Today.
5: Highly symbolic is the first location he stopped at. In fact, going into Saudi Arabia spoke volumes as it relates to the conflict that's going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Actually Iran is at odds with the Arab world. And when you go into Saudi Arabia and then you have fifty thousand I'm sorry, fifty different national leaders of the Arab states and some of the Islamic states as well make their way to meet with President Trump in Saudi Arabia. That is very symbolic, but it's very meaningful as far as as the Iranians. The Iranians had better be paying attention. And then when you have the president stand and go after the Iranians, both in Saudi Arabia and in Jerusalem itself, you're hearing volumes from the president. He's not afraid to speak to the issue of the Iranians. He's cutting them down at the knees. He's endeavoring to try to rework that whole uh, peace deal, or that uh, actually a deal as a relationship the best. that President Trump needs to go back to school, Uh, maybe that school that he started and fell apart ought to have a course in Islam 101, because his speech gave indication he didn't know what Islam was all about. So I'm not sure that 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 was a great speech, ultimately, that's going to result in something that would assist the destruction of the radical Islamic uh, activities going on in the Middle East and, as we know, around the world. But it was very symbolic that he went into Saudi Arabia first, that he met there. Uh, The grandiose uh, meeting or presentation uh, by the Saudis as the president arrived, I mean, it just made... The little trip into Israel looked like a, tr- a stop behind a bus station. Someplace it was not. It was not as nearly flamboyant uh, in Israel as it was in Saudi Arabia. When you see our president dancing with uh, the uh, the Arab world and the leaders of the Arab world, that has to be something you have to think about. And that is very symbolic. That. Uh, that photo op was excellent as far as the president was concerned, and I think that uh, indeed uh, we're going to see what's going to be a result of that, uh, and we already know what's a result of it. Uh, the fact is that uh, they made some deals: uh, 110 billion—that's a B, 110 mm. billion dollars in arms sales, but up to 350 billion over the next 10 years. That was very symbolic. And the fact that uh, Trump did not go into uh, Ramallah, that he met instead in Bethlehem with Mahmoud Abbas, another very symbolic move. The fact that he met with the Pope in Rome, Italy earlier today, also very symbolic. A lot of symbolism in this trip, the Tolerance Tour, and, and in, it, just in the fact that he's trying to bring these three religions Islam, Judaism, and Christianity together. That is very symbolic, and this is uh, very interesting, all that developed.
0: Jimmy DeYoung here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website prophecytoday.com. More coverage now of President Trump's recent foreign trip, Paul Kengora, professor of political science and executive director of the Center for Vision and Values at Grove City College, discussed with me the relationship between then-President Reagan and then-Pope John Paul II, as well as a recent meeting between President Trump and Pope Francis at the Vatican. He has written a book called A Pope and a President, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, and the Extraordinary Untold Story of the 20th Century. He also wrote a series of articles for the stream relative to the President-Pope Dynamics. Here now is Paul Gore.
6: I talk in the book about this extraordinary moment where John Paul II visited his Polish homeland in June 1979. And Ronald Reagan was sitting in his living room in California. I actually talked to the guy who was sitting in the living room with Reagan. It was was Richard Allen, who would be Reagan's first national security advisor. And they were talking foreign policy like they did. Reagan was planning a run for the presidency just, just around the corner the next year. And they took a break and they turned on the TV to catch the latest news and they were watching footage of the Pope going back, back to Poland and you've got these massive crowds of people. I mean, imagine you know, an outdoor mass service of a million people, right? And, and Richard Allen told me, he said, I looked over at Reagan and there were tears in his eyes and he was practically jumping out of his seat. And he said, that's it, that's it, that's it. The Pope is the key, the Pope is the key. So we, he said, "Dick, we've got to get elected, and we've got to reach out to him and, and the Vatican and make them an ally, because he believed, and he understood this. That, and, and by the way, so did the Soviets. They understood this too, that this guy, especially through Poland, you know, the one country in the communist bloc where they couldn't their war on religion didn't work. He, if, if Poland, and he held the power. Uh, Poland could be the dagger to the heart of the Soviet Empire." So, so Reagan wanted to get together with him early on. Then he became president in January 1981, we started reaching out to him immediately. I found documents of the Reagan Library from February 81, where Reagan was reaching out to him. And then two extraordinary events. Reagan was shot March 30, 1981. And then John Paul II, everybody forgets this, Bob. Everybody remembers that, that they were both shot. Everyone forgets how close it was. Mm. Um, John Paul II was shot May 13, 1981, and, and that would give them give them a even more unique and an even closer bond that when they finally came together at the Vatican June 7, 1982, they said to one another that they believed that God had spared their lives, because they both should have died. They should have bled to death, that God had spared their lives for a special purpose, which they believed was to take down and defeat atheistic Soviet communism. I think both of these guys, Trump and Pope Francis, realize that radical Islam is is a is a global menace and serious international threat. And and in fact, we all know that Trump knows that, and I know that Pope Francis knows it as well. Now that said, the way that they speak about it and and address it is totally different, right? I mean, Trump Trump will talk about you know, blowing the evil blankety-blanks to smithereens, right? Francis is doing a much more diplomatic, um, I guess you could say merciful, charitable approach, but they're both dealing with it in the ways they're dealing with it because they recognize it's a big threat. And, And I think the most interesting thing that came out of that meeting last week, the Vatican statement was very short. It was only about 100 to 200 words, but it said that they both expressed their great concern for religious persecution, especially of Christian communities in the Middle East. So, in a sense, like Reagan and John Paul II, they agree on what what the what the global menace is. But I, they, where they probably disagree is how to respond to it. Although even then, you know, Reagan and John Paul II, Reagan didn't want to drop a nuke on the Kremlin, right? Uh, you know he 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 looked for he looked for nonviolent ways to to take down Soviet communism, which is why. You know, they tried to figure out how could they they aid and sustain and save the solidarity movement. That didn't involve killing Russians. That just involved keeping Lech Walesa and Solidarity alive. So um, these two men, too, I think, you know, w- w- want the same approach. And there's times you're going to have to use force, but I think both would um, rather try to use uh, nonviolent means if they can to try to take down the threat. I don't know if they could do it. But but so so there's a little more commonality there than people thought, and 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 frankly too, Bob, I I wasn't surprised when when these two apparently got along as well as they did at the Vatican, because you know I know people who know Trump, and I know people who've met Pope Francis, and they say these are nice guys, they're friendly guys, and despite what they may say in public, you know Trump, you know can, can be very uh, belligerent and <laughs> vulgar sometimes in public. But they say, when you meet these guys, you get along with them. And, you know, we've seen with Donald Trump that he likes people who are nice to him. And I wasn't surprised that Pope Francis, despite statements he made last year about building walls and so forth, that was directed to Trump, that I'm not surprised that he was nice to Trump and Trump responded in kind.
0: Paul Ken Gore here on The intersection. You can learn more about the sitter by going to visionandandvalues.org. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's retired Air Force chaplain, retired Colonel Robert Michael Hicks, author of the book Few Call It War, Religious Terrorism Then and Now. In our conversation, he provided some insight into some of the religious elements of radical Islamic terrorism. Here now is Robert Michael Hicks.
7: Unfortunately... The negative side is, and if the stats are accurate, and I think they are, that about 80% of the mosques in America are funded by Gulf state money. And most of those clerics are trained in Saudi Arabia. Now, you just put the dots together on that, funded by Saudi Arabia. Likewise, the chairs of Middle East studies all throughout our country Are mostly funded by Saudi Arabia or Gulf state money. And there's an ideology that comes with that. And that ideology is from the Wahhab version of Sunni uh, doctrine, which is lethal toward the West. And so I find even if we have moderate Muslims, if they are in a mosque of that sort or being exposed to that kind of literature, It's easy to become influenced, and then there's the the jurist problem, those uh, scholars that look at the doctrines of Islam, there's no Quranic justification for a Muslim living under a non-Islamic government. The Quran only says the only reason to be in a non-Islamic government is to be there for a period of time to find your runaway slave and return him. (laughs) So as one of my favorite writers says, moderate Muslims in America that just want to be good Americans and be Muslim and carry on a normal American lifestyle have no Quranic justification to do it. So they're in Mm -hmm. a bind, and the way they can justify staying here is at least writing a check to support some kind of jihadic mission or uh, giving some kind of material support to those that are doing jihad. And because that is the only other reason the Quran and the Hadith justify being under a non Islamic government is to do jihad. So I think many are fearful to be outspoken against radicalism and the terrorism. Uh, Rudy uh, Jasser, who's one of the few uh, really really good Muslim thinkers, former Navy surgeon, uh, called a conference in Phoenix years ago to get all the clerics together for a conference. And he had several moderates that were going to lead this thing, and one by one they all backed out because they were getting fearful for their own families and lives. And so I think there's a lot, a majority of of, uh, Muslims in America, who are moderate, and yet there's real fear that if they get outspoken that they will be labeled.
0: Very interesting. So as we look at the philosophy, and of course, you've, you've had videos and literature about conquering the West and threatening the West. What do you see as the keys to security in America today against this enemy that, that basically has stated that they want to subvert the West and our way of life?
7: Well, Sun Tzu says, that, you know, the great scholar of warfare uh, says, until we understand our enemy, we'll never defeat him. And I think we need to first understand their strategy. If we go back to probably one of the greatest thinkers in the 1950s about radicalism, a guy named Saeed Khatoub, who was an Egyptian, he basically had three steps to establishing an Islamic state. One, you penetrate Western society— Two, you populate it, which basically means outpopulate it, and then you dominate it. And I would say Europe right now is at stage two, and in some enclaves, stage three, where Sharia law is the law of some communities, and uh, local police will not go in there. And they will use our freedom and our existing laws uh, of discrimination as a justification that they need to be under Sharia law in their own regard. And so it, for me, it's a constitutional issue that we as Americans need to speak out and say,
0: wait a minute. Robert Michael Hicks here on The Intersection. His website address is robertmichaelhicks.com. Well, we are nearing the end of today's edition of The Intersection podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast. Two blogs are accessible, and you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Also, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me. I'm Bob Crittenden.